In today's episode, we're concluding my conversation with Jan Barford, one of my John Brown compadres. I introduced Jan in the last episode as an accomplished stage actor and as a serious researcher on John Brown, who's working on a series about John Brown and Frederick Douglass. In this episode, Jan shares a little about that project, and then we'll reflect together upon Brown and his significance to the history of the black struggle in the 19th century. Then we talk about some highlights from our adventure in Kansas this past July when we went west to invade the territory, mainly doing research at the wonderful Kansas State Historical Society in Topeka, but also some touring of historic sites. So we'll visit some of that fun in this episode as well. And like the last episode, I'll post a link to the John Brown Today blog so you can see photos of that trip if you're interested. Well, you may recall from the last episode that Jan shared how his interest in John Brown began two decades ago when he read the 1909 biography of John Brown by W.B. Du Bois. So that's where our discussion resumes. From New York City, this is Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. Well, I mean, it's a great story for me. It's very inspiring because this community, if I can call it, of John Brown people, they all have interesting stories. And it's amazing how John Brown draws people across disciplines, across walks of life, people with different perspectives. But I find it interesting that Du Bois's work spoke to you. There is something special about that book, flawed as it is by, I think his research was very limited. It wasn't his fault. He didn't have resources to do the research. The strength of that book is not the research, it's the interpretation. And I think that's what spoke to you. And I think that's the value of that book. I would say, in contrast, the Villard who attacked Du Bois, the strength of his book is in the research, but not in the interpretation. Yeah, it's interesting. And yeah. they were and they were contemporaries. Yeah, yeah. contemporaries and, well, and knew each other. But that's the book that kind of puts you on a path that you have been not only following, but it's gone deeper and deeper in your life. And then at some point you started, I don't want to demand more of, of you talking about your work, particularly yeah. your work, but how did that evolve? Yeah, I mean, you know, because I have been an actor for so many years and, you know, working with playwrights and, you know, having the the good fortune to be part of many new plays where you're creating work for the first time. The part of me that is, you know, when you're when you're reading, you're you're a student and you're learning. But then in my work, I'm a storyteller and I've dabbled in writing and storytelling just purely from my imagination. But I've never transferred that into anything professionally. But the power of this John Brown story, and I really should say the depth of it inside of me Mm, was just so deep and is still so deep that it it really has become part of me. And it's a part of me that is very much related to my soul, you know, and when any of us are doing soul work, it's very meaningful. It's very gratifying because you feel that you're doing something that you're on the earth to do because it comes from a part of you that's not about anybody applauding you or you getting a big paycheck or you getting a pat on the back or anything. It's about you communing with your spirit and what you're here to do. And I I guess in that sense, I just because this has been going on for so long, this is clearly something that is arguably the, the most important work in my life, even kind of more than 
than my my acting parts, which I'm very grateful for my acting career. I, I'm very lucky to have been associated with some great people and get to do that work, but this is something else. And so, Lou, over the years, for a while, I was going to do a documentary. I think you probably remember I was going around with a camera and I interviewed yeah. you and I yeah. interviewed Evan Carton and I interviewed David Reynolds and I've got all these wonderful tapes of you wonderful historians and asking you questions. And and then it was going to be a play and I was going to do a play for a while. And then it was going to be a movie. And then, and now because I really ultimately just became too frustrated by the restrictions of a singular feature film. And also because we're very much in the zeitgeist of the television series, I've been developing a series that's primarily based on on the relationship between Douglas and Brown, but it really looks at the war to abolish slavery. And of course, Brown is the central kind of catalyst for revolutionary violence in the cause. And as you know, as he he was prophetic, I mean, his last note that he wrote to the guard before he was executed said, I may not be getting this exactly right. It said, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. Beautifully. Yeah, that's it. I mean, what can you say? Yeah. yeah. You know, and five years later, 700,000 people had died in the cause of American freedom. That Margaret Washington says the Civil War was our revolutionary war. The Civil War was the war that made the country we live in now was established, you know, those abolitionists, they're heroes, all of them. Yes. They helped us gain whatever freedoms we have. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we were saying earlier, I just don't agree with that idea that I hear some people say that we didn't need the Civil War and that slavery would have just faded away. I just don't see that. One of the things that I want to talk about is that your work is very nuanced in terms of the African-American leadership and your appreciation for that. And then the resonance of today in race and talking about John Brown. Well, I would just say briefly before we end that, you know, the whole origin of how Douglas and Brown came to know each other was through Henry Highland Garnett and Jermaine Logan. And according to Garnett, they had known each other a good 10 years before Brown met Douglas. And Brown, from his own pocket, paid to have a pamphlet printed, which had David Walker's appeal and Garnett's famous call to rebellion from 1843 from the Buffalo Convention. And if anybody wants to know what John Brown stood for ideologically, just read Walker's appeal. Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's a single word that David Walker said that John Brown didn't agree with. If you read those words that that black man wrote in 1829, that'll tell you anything you want to know about John Brown. That's the foundation of it. Yeah. And I think Garnett, too. I mean, Garnett's call to rebellion it seems to be, at least to my eye, also deeply inspired by Walker's yeah. writing. John Brown is in touch with what might be called the nationalist tradition and called the inter- integrationist tradition. But I think, if anything, 
he was much more influenced by the nationalists than he was by the integrationists. Not that he was against integration, he lived integration, but he was honed by that discourse and dialogue with men like Garnett. You know, that fundamental hypocrisy that is so brilliantly and powerfully expressed in Walker's appeal, which basically just says this whole white Christian thing that we're living in is such BS yeah. and everybody knows it. And I think that when you talk about the spirit of black nationalism, it's saying we're people, we're human beings. We deserve the right to govern ourselves. I think that's something that would deeply resonate with John Brown. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that just the, the kind of fundamental justice in that, yeah. that I think for him, it, it would just be universal. Yes. So with our trip, I guess we can round out the conversation. We did a trip together. And uh, I mentioned this in the podcast before that I was going to be perhaps doing that. So it was research, but we were able to also see some interesting things. What would you say were some highlights for you of what we saw? Oh, gosh, there were there were many. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is that hat. <laughs> yes, I just that thing is just it's magical. Yes. It really is just magical. It's an unusual hat. It's almost like a fez. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 just it's an unusual kind of hat and I didn't I just had never imagined that he was wearing that when they went into Harper's Ferry. Yeah. Isn't that so? And I wonder, I mean, did he have it on the whole time? I mean, in the sketches of him, he doesn't have a hat on. There's so by the time it was over, he, he lost it somewhere in there. Yes. Yeah. I don't know when or where, but as I recall, it was a rainy night and a little cold. Yes. So it makes sense. And did it have fur on it? Uh, there's a sketch of it that was made probably a hundred more years ago that looks like it had some kind of texture of fur. But of course, now it's worn down to the cloth. But, you know, they picture John Brown with this wide brim hat or a cowboy hat. And then when you picture it on, you know, with his peculiar profile, that, yeah. you know, that beak, beakish kind of nose and his profile, it's just an amazing, you can almost see his head in that hat. When I agree. I agree. It's really compelling. Yeah. The uh, other thing, Lou, that, that, I, that I'm reminded of that gives me a little chuckle is that when we will tell your audience here, we went to Lane, Kansas, where they have a marker which indicates that the Potawatomi massacre, as it's called, was nearby. But we we were privy to where to go to get to the actual site, which was not on the Potawatomi Creek, but on Mosquito Creek. Yeah. So, so we went down this, this scary country road to a dead end, you know, yeah. by the railroad tracks. It was a little nerve wracking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. A guy from Chicago and a guy from New York. Yeah. We were a little out of our element. Yeah. But then we just got mauled by these mosquitoes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just yeah. annihilated. Yeah. And all I could think was that the old man was just chuckling in his grave. Yeah. You know? <laughs> You want to see Mosquito Creek? Your boys really want to go to Mosquito Creek? <laughs> yeah. Well, we saw it all right. But I'd say it was worth it. I've, I've, oh, absolutely. Scratching, uh, scratching and itching was worth it. What about you, Lou? What was your highlight? 
Well, you know, I, the hat was something that I wanted to see because when I learned that it was there, at, it's held in the the cabin, the Adair cabin at, at Osawatomi. When I learned that it was there, I didn't know that until last summer. I was so eager to see it. So that was important. And I think also at the Adair cabin, that knife, which I think you also noted. And I don't know, again, I guess that was passed from the Brown family to Kansas and then it ended up there. That was one of a box of knives that John Brown had handed out to black families in Springfield, Massachusetts, after the passing of the fugitive slave law. That's right. That was the League of Gileadites. Exactly. And so to see the knife and it, it was a formidable knife. It wasn't a butter knife. It was a real, you know, it was a serious knife. And to know that within the means he had as a businessman who was in the business was not doing great, but he had some money. Mm -hmm. If he could have bought guns for the Springfield black community, he would have bought guns, but he bought knives and these are serious knives. And he gave them out, I think, on a Thanksgiving service. Mm at a church. Mm -hmm. And it suggests a number of things. It suggests, you know, how fearful the community was, how fearful oh, yeah. the community was, and also his radical commitment to arming Black people and believing that they could fight and would fight for themselves. So I love seeing that knife. And the last thing about that cabin, I still look at it. I took pictures and you saw this it was how it was explained to us how Brown built the, the second yeah. level. And yeah. I, I've been looking at those of those timbers and those beams. Very, yeah, those beams. They're yeah. very crudely cut and, and, and there are marks in them, but you can just see the axe work and saying this is John Brown's kind of very practical work. He, he made these things. It's extraordinary. And along those lines, you know, for us Brown geeks, you know, yeah. the story that I just you know, just kind of get enchanted by is when he was getting ready to move his family to uh, Pennsylvania from Eastern Ohio. And he'd gone over there and he'd purchased, uh, I think, wasn't it like five acres of timber that he cleared by himself? Yes. I mean, look at five acres of timber <laughs> just, yeah. and think of clearing it by yourself. I mean, and we're not talking about chainsaws, you know. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. think he had a, you know, an axe and a saw and and a couple of oxen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and but again, Lou, it it really does speak to this kind of mythical pioneer American man, you know, who believed in justice. He actually believed in the golden rule. Yes. yes. He actually believed in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. I mean, are these such strange things? Yeah. I mean, people call themselves Christians. I mean, is it so strange that you would believe in the golden rule? Yeah, right. Is it so strange that you would think, you know, that that applies to all people? You know, it, it's um, hard to believe that such fundamental tenets are looked at as being radical. Yes. Uh, he just walked the walk. That's it. And I think, you know, that's why there's always going to be people. I mean, even with the podcast, I get nice emails from people saying that they just appreciate doing this. There's a lot of people who, who get a sense of this and who embrace Brown. And I think it's because embedded in this story is a truth that Brown represents. Yeah. It's not even the man. It's in some ways he gets to fold all this into his own life and story 
in a way that others did not. I mean, and then you talk about the frontiersmen. In some respects, I think John Brown is a much better representative of kind of the so-called American frontier than Lincoln. Lincoln often gets, you know, viewed as kind of the quintessential. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Brown yeah. Is, is, is a much better example of that. And Lincoln was very much a chase. I mean, he was a chaser after success. And I'm not saying that that's a necessarily a bad thing. But despite his Illinois beginnings, all that rough beginnings, he really aspired. And he loved books. You know, he was a voracious reader and he fell in love with the law. And, you know, as you and I have spoken about, his move to abolition was very late in his life. Yeah. He clung to racist laws for, you know, most of his life. I mean, he defended people based on anti-slavery principles, yeah. but not based on abolition principles. That's right. And that's an important difference that I think a lot of people don't appreciate about what these abolitionists were up against, because it wasn't just the slave power. For example, in Kansas, Brown excoriated a lot of these free state people who were racists. The reason they were free state was because they didn't want competition for cheap labor. Then they didn't want to be around black people. And Lincoln himself, in I think most people believe the lowest moment of his political career, but he repeated the Dred Scott decision almost verbatim in a debate with Stephen Douglas in the fall of 1858. That's one year before Brown's raid. That's the progressive party. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't think people quite understand Lincoln's arc with the question of abolition. He really was never an abolitionist, per se, ever. I mean, you could even make arguments that the moves that he made in his during his presidency were tactical to preserve the union. You know, well, the late Larry Lawrence used to always argue Larry was probably tougher on Lincoln than I am. But Larry used to argue that Lincoln was clever in kind of rolling the end of slavery into the, the struggle for the union. He saw that as very convenient to the government because if it had taken place as an independent movement, it might have had very different ramifications for the country that was to come out of the post-slavery era. So yeah. I, you know, I don't know if, if that was really conscious on Lincoln's part, but certainly he benefited ultimately, and the union and the government became the emancipator, yeah. as opposed to the abolitionists who talked so much. But John Brown was the one who triggered it. Whatever else they can say about it, even in his own errors, John Brown represented. And I think that's unfortunately was eclipsed also by the Civil War, is that going into the Civil War, John Brown was just looming over the country. And well, I feel like one of the things that he doesn't really get credit for is the, again, this kind of formality. You know, a lot of times the foray in Harper's Ferry, you know, he was captured by the Marines and, you know, so, oh, he failed. He was a terrible military tactician. He didn't know what he was doing. But the real story of of what he was trying to put forward was an extraordinarily progressive That uh, group of revolutionaries that came out of Kansas with him as they were organizing their state of Topeka, they called it. You know, they were talking about full black citizenship, full voting rights for women. You know, I mean, it it was um, by modern standards, we might look at it and go, oh, well, okay. But at that time, those were extremely radical things that they were fighting for. 
you know, that they weren't just talking about it. They were doing everything in their power to organize a revolution. And Brown wanted Black people at the forefront of it. That's why he went to Canada and talked to Martin Delaney and Harriet Tubman. And he wanted... And again, some of this stuff with Douglas is mysterious because, you know, he's the only one who survived those last meetings. Yes. So his is the only take we have on it. But I just feel like that footnote that Brown is in history books about, oh, he started the Civil War. It's sad because he did so much more than that. Maybe this time around, there'll be a sufficient change. But I do think that the arts are needed to help the country to come to the sensibility. I don't think biographers and historians alone can do it. I think David Reynolds did a great service. I don't agree with everything David Reynolds says in his biography, but I think that his book was like a blockbuster kind of a contribution. But I also think we got to get beyond Ethan Hawke and the good Lord Bird hope that your work is going to come to fruition because I think we need that kind of story to be written. We need that kind of, of story that really is based on deep reflection and research and deep consideration and appreciation without creating a saint's life. I appreciate that. And I too will give all my best spirit to you know any kind of positive, hopeful energy. It's a massive thing to try to get on its feet enormously expensive. But I think that the way that we are functioning right now as people, you know, we live in a time where people watch movies on their phones. Mm. You know, it's the impact that the educational system has is in competition with the distraction of devices, media, that sort of thing. And if there's a way to put out something that is honest and that honors and respects the lives and the spirits of these extraordinarily important and honorable people from our past who gave their lives to help us live in the America that they believe was worth fighting for. You know, that I think can go at least some way to offering people a way to see themselves. That's ultimately what it's about. It's about understanding who we are. For all of us, who are we? What are we doing here? What is this nation built on? What's it predicated upon? That's what these people were interrogating with every fiber of their being. These arguments between these people were extraordinarily intelligent and vital and passionate. They cared immensely about each other and about the country and about justice. Cornell West has that wonderful statement that I think I'm going to mangle here, but I think he called justice the arm of love. Does that ring a bell to you? Justice is love and action, something like that. I love that. I just love that idea. And to me, that's what John Brown was. You know, we, you and I talked about this in Kansas, you know, oh, Brown, he, you know, oh, he's that famous mural, which we saw of his, you know, his eyes like this, and he's got a Bible and he's got a rifle. But all of the accounts that you read about him from people who are in his presence, people of enormous diversity, diversity of education, diversity of race, diversity of gender, 
People who were in his presence spoke about the love that was emanating from him and the feeling. You know, Douglas said, we, we've talked about this, that amazing letter that he wrote late in his life where he talked about Brown's spiritual nature and that he just was on this other plane as a man of faith yes. and that he was trying to lift him up. That comes from love. Yes. That, that doesn't come from anger. Of course, he was outraged about evil. And why shouldn't he be? But that outrage comes from a loving heart. That's why he's outraged. I feel like that is also uh, a big part of who he was. From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr. And this is John Brown Today. Today.